Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. morning church. Our reading this morning will be from Ruth 1, 8 to 22. At the end of the reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Please, please respond by saying, okay. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. And said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand have turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Opa kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But, but Ruth clung to her. Look, she said, Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem, as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Um, Ofre, thank you for the reading. Good morning, everyone. How are you all doing? Well, a special welcome to those who are worshiping with us for the first time. Uh, we are happy that you would have chosen today. And uh, we are in a series, a new series. But it's not that new. It started, it was brand new last week. Um, there's, you know, there's fresh bread. There's bread that comes out of the oven, and there's bread that is today's bread, all right? So you've come to the today's bread part of it. Next week, 
we'll put it in the freezer so it will not be, we'll, use, we'll microwave it. But uh, yeah, so we are, we started this series in the book of Ruth. And so we are just on the second part there. My name is Femi. Again, if, if this is your first time, we're happy to have you. Um, I think I do, I do want to start with this. Um, a few years ago, I was reflecting on this, you know, we started church, but it wasn't too long ago. I was, I was reflecting on what it meant to be a good pastor, what it meant to be a good pastor. Because I was like, God, I'm trying my best, but I feel like there's something missing. So at some point, you know, you talk to God, but at other points, it's important to talk to yourself and listen to the inner voice. And so the inner voice told me there are three things that are needed, three important things that are needed to be a very good pastor. The first one is that you have to have good looks. So I looked at the mirror like, check. The second one said, the second one said that you have to be so humble that it's not just that people will tell you that you are humble. There's another level. You need to be so humble that you yourself, you know. This humility thing, I cracked it. And I checked, I said, ah. If you asked me 10 years before that, I'm like, eh, I had some things to work on. But about five years before that, I'd finished the humility thing. I said, ah, humility, bucket loads of it, check. And so then the last thing was, what, what's, what's left? And the last thing was this. In order for you to pastor the church well, you need to know your people well. And for you to know your people well, you need to have informants everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Put informants everywhere. And I have to let you guys know, so on that time, I put informants. There's an informant there, there's an informant here, there's an informant everywhere. And so some of my informants came to meet me um, during the week. And they shared some news with me. And the news was that I had made an announcement last week Sunday, a big announcement, breaking news. I said that in that announcement that I was now saying that the title that I had held to the most, that I said this was the one that made me the happiest when people called me the CSTO, that in time of deep prayer, I have decided that the CSTO must now become number two and that the GQM is number one. Do you remember that? For those of us who are here, GQM. But then, apparently, some people started spreading a rumor that I was doing that because I had run dry. <laughs> I, had, I no longer had any stories to tell. That is the thing what the inspiration, the inspiration had gone. And I said, what's the best way to deal with haters? <laughs> you prove them wrong. So the CSTO I want to announce to you is back. <laughs> I have a story. I have a story for you guys. Only for the haters. But just because I'm dealing with the haters today, I'm going to tell you a story, but it's a story that you already know. But it's good to say it again. Story, story. story. Once upon a time, hear the parable of the drowning preacher. A storm descends on a small town, and the down person turns into a flood. As the waters rise, the local preacher kneels in prayer on the church porch, surrounded by water. By and by, one of the townsfolk comes up the street in a canoe. Better get in, preacher, he says. The waters are rising fast. 
No, says the preacher. I have faith in the Lord. He will save me. Still, the waters rise. Now the preacher is up on the balcony, wringing his hands in supplication, when another guy zips in with a motorboat. Come on, preacher, he says. We need to get you out of here. The embankment's gone. The embankment's going to break any minute. Now, once again, the preacher is unmoved. I shall remain, he said. The Lord will see me through. After a while, the embankment breaks and the flood rushes over the church until only the steeple remains above the water. The preacher is up there, clinging to the cross with, when a helicopter descends out of the clouds and a state trooper calls down to him through a megaphone, grab the ladder, preacher. This is your last chance. Once again, the preacher insists that the Lord will deliver him because he has faith in him. <sighs> Predictably, he drowns. But he was a pious man. And so he went to heaven. And one day, after a while, he gets to an interview with God. And he asks the Almighty, Lord, I had unwavering faith in you. Why didn't you deliver me from that flood? God shakes his head. He says, what do you want from me? I sent you two boats and the helicopter. And you said you have faith in me. The end. <laughs> Now listen, I, will, I can't, there's no way you can convince me that God does not do miracles today. You can't convince me out of it. The scientist in me, the statistician in me, personal experiences and other people's experiences have gotten me to that. It's a fact that God does miracles. God works extraordinarily. Are you following me? But, he also works. He delights in working in the ordinary. He sent two boats and what? A helicopter. You see, if we are not careful, and this is what we see in the book, uh, when we consider these two books together, the book of Judges and the book of Ruth, if we get too distracted by seeking the spectacular, you may be missing out on what God is doing in the ordinary. You see, in the book of Judges, God, the extraordinary work, God, he works through extraordinary means. As we said, we saw miracles, we saw mighty men, we saw conquering of wars, we saw many different things. Do you know the result of that at the end of the book of Judges? It was less than ordinary. But in the book of Ruth, at the same time, when the book of Judges was going on, at the same time, this same extraordinary God, he worked through ordinary means and the result of it at the end of the day were extraordinary. Are you following what I'm saying? If you are not careful, you can get so distracted in seeking spectacular things that you miss out on how God is working in the ordinary. For some of us who are here today, maybe because of the condition you find yourself in, Debilitating sin, debilitating addiction, debilitating suffering. And you are looking out for one person to prophesy to you or one person to actually do a miracle for you or one person to do something extraordinary. Can I say, while God can do all of those things, that God also works spectacularly through the ordinary. 
And one of the ways that happens is this. Rather than God send you in the time of suffering and saying, rather than God send you a prophet, rather than God send you a, a miracle worker, do you know what God does? He just sends you an ordinary person that is extraordinarily committed to you. Committed to you in the best sense of what we call family. That's exactly what happened to Naomi. Naomi had got into a condition where things were so terrible for her and the heavens did not open. As the floods were rising, nothing of all the spectacular things we expect will happen. You know what God did? God sent her a person. May God send you a person today. He walked through the ordinary means of Ruth. And so you are here today. God has been sending such people to you. May today be the ending of your saying, no, I have faith in the Lord. He will save me. May that be turned into, thank you, Lord, for working in my life through my committed family. Or maybe in the converse, you may be here today and God has been sending you to be such a person to those in need of you. May today be the ending of your saying, no, I have faith in the Lord. He will save them. But instead, may that turn into, thank you, Lord, for working through my life in my committed family. I pray that the Lord will make us CCL, uh, CCL City Church. May God make us a committed family. A family where people, our commitment to one another becomes a testimony of what Jesus can do. And so that's what we're talking today about. Title of the sermon, A Committed Family. And we're going to learn that a committed family is an honest family, a determined family, and a free family. It's an honest family, a determined family, and a free family family. Let us pray. Now, Lord God Almighty, we want to ask for your presence here. Thank you for the time of worship and time of prayer where you have already started being with us. But we ask, oh God, for a fresh wave of your light, a fresh wave, oh God, of your power. Father, make us, O oh God, what we cannot make ourselves. We pray, O oh Lord, that your word, O oh God, will come as, as, as a hammer to break, O oh God, the things in us that resist against you. Pray, O oh Lord, that your word will come to us like fire to burn up, O oh God, the things that are keeping us from coming to you, from entering into the things that you have called us to come into. Will you now move, Holy Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first of all, a committed family is an honest family. How many of us know that there is suffering and there is, or there's, when someone is suffering and there is suffering? <laughs> there are two different things. Some call it suffering. You see, between now and last week, uh, between now and last week, right, um, Arsenal played two games. They didn't, we didn't do very well. We didn't do very well. We drew the first one. We lost the second one. The second one was a bit inconsequential, but we lost. And we drew. You, you know, we're not used to drawing and losing. So, so it was a difficult, I have to confess to you, it was a difficult time during the week. It was a difficult time for me during the week. I suffered a little bit. I suffered. Yes. I bind every demonic spirit of lies in this place. It is not starting for us, Dickie Nolumbi. The dead bone shall rise. I've been saying it here. Now, in the same period that I was, quote-unquote, suffering, 
in the same period that was quote-unquote suffering, floods were taking over this country. People were losing things. There is suffering, but there is suffering. And some of us here, you are going through one or two difficult things, and it is true, it is bad. But there are some of us here that the pain is so much with what we've been going through. Can I tell you that Naomi could relate? Relate very well. Naomi had got into a situation where she left where she was because of economic suffering. She left where she was because of economic suffering. And they got into the place of Moab. She went with her husband and her sons. At this point now, even the economic suffering that she was looking for, it was worse. She was now worse off. You know why? Because her present economic security was taken away when her husband died. Her future economic security was taken away when her sons died. So economically now, she's bankrupt now and she's bankrupt in the future. But not only is she suffering economically, she's also suffering socially. The people, her family had been taken away from her. Not only is she suffering socially, she's suffering emotionally. She must have been suffering mentally. She's suffering spiritually. She was suffering. And you know, there's a way that sometimes you have suffered so much, and I'm not even talking about physical suffering or sickness. I'm just saying pain, disaster, different disappointments. You've suffered so much that it starts to show on your face. You know, some people walk around with a permanent frown or a permanent, they're just down. And you'll be like, this person doesn't look the way that it used to look. In fact, Naomi's suffering had become so bad that by the time they, you get to verse 19, when she's going back home in verse 19, do you know what they said? They said, can this be Naomi? She was becoming unrecognizable because of the suffering. And many times when we are going through that kind of suffering, the inevitable question comes. Now, this inevitable question is not actually the question we need answered the most, but it is the question that just comes. You know what it is? Why? Why is this happening? And many times we feel that it is a mysterious question to ask, and it truly is sometimes, but some other times it's very, very easy to answer. Naomi never asked that question. Do you know why she didn't ask it? She knew the answer. She was very clear as to why and who was behind the suffering. Notice what she said in verse 13. She said, the Lord's hand has turned against me. You think, oh, am I making that up? Ah, I'll give you more. Look at verse 20. She says, the Almighty has made my life bitter. Number two. 21, she said, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty had five times. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi understood who was behind her suffering. God was. Now, you hear that? That sounds a bit, eh? Are you telling me now that God is the one behind my suffering? Maybe. Now, I want to be careful with this because I know it can be misconstrued. It can be misperceived. And sometimes we have questions about this. So I want to quickly answer that with three theological questions and also anticipate three particular, um, um, three particular uh, uh, arguments we may have against it. First one, let me ask this question. Let me answer this question very quickly. Do we have a slide there? The first question is this. Can all suffering, can all suffering be related to sin? 
Can all suffering be related to sin? And then the answer is what? Yes. All suffering can be related to sin. Because at the end of the day, you know where all suffering is going? Is the ultimate suffering is death. The ultimate suffering is death. Everything that we go through, all the issues uh, that we go through, it's all pointing us towards death. And so, when we say, how did death come? It was, it was through sin. Romans chapter uh, 5, verse uh, um, uh, 12. Look at what it says. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. Death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Sin as the result of what we call the fall, Adam's fall, is the thing that brings suffering at a macro level. Second question. Is all individual suffering always caused by individual sin? Is all individual suffering always caused by individual sin? The answer is no. Jesus shows this emphatically in John chapter uh, nine, when his disciples came, they came across somebody that was blind. His name was, I can't remember his name, it's not Bart Bartimaeus. But they came across someone who was blind. And his disciples asked the question in John 9, verse 2 and 3. He says, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus says, neither the man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. No. The answer is not every individual sin, can, uh, individual suffering can be point, uh, related to individual sin. Final question. Can individual sin ever be related, can individual suffering ever be related to individual sin? And the answer is yes. You see, the reason why Jesus' disciples asked Jesus that question is because they knew that there was a pattern for that. In fact, that was John chapter 9. In John chapter 5, four chapters before, there was a guy who was a paralytic that Jesus healed. And at some point, he didn't know who was Jesus that healed him. At some point, they questioned him. He eventually found Jesus. And then in John chapter 5, verse 14, this is what was said. Is that on the screen? John 5, 14. It says, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. What did he say next? Or else something worse may happen to you. Now, somebody say, eh, that doesn't prove that his paralysis came as a result of sin. It's true. But at least it proves that if he starts sinning now, he will suffer. Are you following? Now, some people will say, I'm talking about some arguments and opposition to it. Some people will say, and, some, and I'm speaking to some of us here who are going through the hard times. Some people will say something like this. I don't like this. This sounds absolutely cruel. Sounds cruel. What kind of God is that? To which I want to say, are you sure? Because all of us want sin to be punished. We do. I was listening to um, a preacher this um, week. You know what he said? He said he had to address online something that was happening. He said they, it has come to their knowledge that some people, some internet people, have found a way of using their uh, uh, crack, well, they sort of cracked into their, their domain and all of that, and started using his email address, well, his fake email address, to write to people. They were targeting particularly vulnerable, particularly single women who had children that were very ill, some terminally ill. And they were saying that he was going to, 
if you have this problem, he was going to pray for you once they just sent some money. And many of these people were sending money via credit card out of their vulnerability because they didn't want to see their children die. The guy said, he said this, he said, he said, will God not punish you? And, you know, there's a part of you that wants to say, ah, how can he say that? But another part of you is like, yes, to do such a thing. And the question is this, if you are saying that, yes, God should punish such a thing, God should punish such an evil. In fact, Proverbs 13, tells, Proverbs 13, 15 tells us, good judgment wins favor, but the unfaithful, the way of the unfaithful leads to their destruction. It says, trouble, in verse 21, trouble pursues the sinner, but the righteous are rewarded with good things. There is a part of us that is already saying, that should be punished. Okay, for those guys, what about your own? You can't have it both ways. Now, somebody else is saying, but I know people who are evil and nothing is happening to them. First thing I want to say is don't be too sure that nothing is happening to them. Because sometimes people suffer in ways that you cannot see. You know, David, most people, if you were in the kingdom of Israel at the time, when you saw David, right, in the latter part of his life, you'd be like, oh, more. If I could just, what's your ambition in life? I just want to be like Baba David. Just want to be like him. Look at him. You know, nothing bad happens to him. He's winning all the wars. There is nobody that is coming to usurp him. He's, he's throwing his last thing up until he died. David has no problems. Really? And you say, but is it not that same David that killed Uriah and uh, uh, took Bathsheba as his wife? But nothing happened to him. Open to 2 Samuel chapter uh, 12, verse 9. 2 Samuel 12, verse 9. It says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. This is a prophet telling David from God. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. So God didn't forget. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah Hittite to be your own. Verse 11. And then in verse 11, it then says, this is what, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. You see, as David was ruling and as his kingdom was going forever, his house was in trouble. His own son raped his daughter. That son, the, the brother to that son, now killed that other son. Then that son now went away for two years, came back, and then he now started to, he wanted to usurp, in fact, he overthrew David for a while. His house was not in order. Some people are suffering. Don't, don't look at the fact that they're driving G-Wagon. The thing that is inside them. Do you understand what I'm saying? You go to their house. So when you say that God is not punishing the sin, be very careful how you say that. Amen. But then somebody will say, yes, but okay, some of the people are doing absolutely horrible evil, and yet they still enter into good political days or uh, political offices. They are, still, they are still wealthy and all of that. And I want to say, yes, I agree. That individual justice doesn't always work linearly. It's not always this person sinned and then this person gets punished at this time. You sinned, you get punished at this time. With this degree, it is true. 
But let me say this. You are too late to the party. Psalm 73 already anticipates that. The Bible is already talking about it. Psalm 73, verse 3, uh, verse two to, uh, 3 to 5 says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4. It says, you know, these wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Verse 5. It says, they are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ill. So at some point we say, hey, if that is happening, then why is this happening to me? But quickly, as I said, I already agreed that individual justice doesn't always work linearly. But are you really trying to make this argument that the mere fact that, my, that it's not happening to other people, my own wrong shouldn't have any consequences? Is that what you are saying? Do you realize how self-centered that is? Should the scammers that you think should be punished, should they also make that argument? And after all, because some people actually, Yahoo, Yahoo boys actually say that. They say, nobody is, is catching the people that are in government, so me too, I can steal. Are you wanting to make that sort of moral argument as well? Absolutely not. As Martin Luther King Jr. says, the arc of moral history may be long, but it always bends towards justice. You know the way Psalm 73 verse 27 ends? Psalm 73 says, those who are far from the Lord will, and it means will eventually perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. God will eventually bring all things to right. He is a God of justice. But the question is this, does he sometimes, does he sometimes punish sin or does he sometimes bring about consequences for our foolishness? The answer is an absolutely, an absolute yes. And if it is not yes, the alternative is worse. Because now you have a God that is not just and you have a universe that doesn't actually follow the way of justice. We can never hope that any good will be rewarded or any evil will be paid for. Naomi's worldview that God was behind this is perfectly normal. But when we ask and we think it is unfair, that is what is abnormal. So what do we do with this? First thing, we're often told, honesty is what? Honesty is what? Some people don't like it. Honesty is what? The best policy. We need to be honest. On two levels, you need to be honest with yourself and you need to be honest with the family. Honest with yourself. Like, I'll tell you, this is hard because I've seen some people who suffer, who suffer and blame others or blame God. Exclusively blame others and blame God. And they refuse to admit their own obvious sin or foolishness or both that has landed them where they are. And can I say to you, if you are here, that until you are honest enough to admit, you can't be on the road to true recovery. And many times, what eventually even happens is you repeat the same thing. The same fate happens because you refuse to learn from what you, were, you actually did. You blamed others. You blamed God. So you couldn't see the thing that landed you where you are. And of course, it's going to repeat itself. Question to you, will you be honest? Because Naomi didn't do that. Naomi understood that her sin was actually the thing that she was paying for. You see, where did she sin? When she left Israel and went to Moab. Do you know what she was doing? She was leaving God and going to be under the canopy of the gods of Moab. You don't believe me? Ruth chapter 2 verse 12. Here's what Boaz tells Ruth by the time they've come back to Bethlehem. Because in that time, your identity was defined by your language, by your ethnicity, by the land that you lived in, and therefore the God over that land. Are you following me? 
So Ruth, Moaz was telling Ruth, when she left her people, he says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. By coming to the land, she was now coming to serve the God of Israel. Therefore, when Elimelech and Naomi left there and they went to Moab, what they were saying was, this God is not helping us in this family. Let's go and seek the help of another God. So she knew at that point that her sin had gotten her to where she was. She was honest. Are you going to be honest? Second is, we need to be honest with our family. If it's not happening to us, sometimes we have to tell people. Listen, I'll be a terrible pastor. I can just want us to feel good and allow the energy to rise. You see, energy has been sucked out of the room now. I'll be a terrible pastor if sometimes I don't tell you this truth. And it, it, I can't tell you, it's not always easy. Sometimes I have seen people, I'm like, ah. you try to nudge them, try to say, yes, I, you're going through this. What have you learned? I often ask some people, after a while, what have you learned through this? And I always shake my head when they still say, I'm still trying to learn, I'm still trying to learn. Things were told to you, don't do this, don't do this. These are the consequences. Don't do this, this was what may happen. And you still go ahead and do it. And then when the thing happens, you now start blaming the person through whom the consequences came. You start blaming God. I prayed about all, and you run away from the issue. Now, here's the thing, guys. For some of us, we have friends. We have family members in this church. Those things are happening to them. And you never, ever are able to say, but you know you did this. But you know you did this. The Bible tells us, listen, if you don't tell the truth, it is never a loving thing. If we are not honest with one another, it is not a loving thing. But in Ephesians 4 verse 15, he also says, speak the truth to one another in love. But I have said this, we have to be a more honest family. A more honest family. Will you be honest? I'll be honest. Will you be? In fact, turn to your neighbor and say, I'll be honest, will you be? They really didn't believe that. All right? God is going to hold you to that thing, by the way. You just said that you will be honest. But I do want to say one more thing. It's a note of caution. Very, very strong caution. If you practice honesty with yourself and you practice honesty with others, if you misapply it, if you misapply it, you can leave people or yourself in a situation where you think that that situation is totally unresolvable because God's position about you is, look at what you have done. If, you, if all you say is, look oh, your mess got you into this thing. Look oh, my mess got me into this thing. If you leave that, if you leave it at that place, or if, if you attack or you come to the person in a way that is not wise, and I'll get into that after, in the second point. But if you go in a way that is not wise, we also run the risk of redefining who God is. And it's once you have screwed up, maybe once, or you give you two times, once you've done that, you are now left to your own devices. God is not that kind of God. There's a, I want to caution very strongly that we must do this thing in the right way. And what is the right way? Well, that takes me to my second point, a determined 
family. Because God is a God of solutions. Yes, Naomi is where Naomi is. In fact, Naomi actually doesn't believe that she's going to come out of the situation. But God doesn't just leave her that way. God is about to work remarkably in Naomi's life. Amen. And the way he's going to do that is his extraordinary working is going to come through the ordinary package of Ruth. Now, how does God do this through Ruth? Before we talk about how God does this through Ruth, we need to examine a crucial contrast in this passage. It is the contrast between Ruth and somebody called Oprah. And if you're finding Oprah very difficult to say, and you, are, you keep saying Oprah, Oprah, because funny enough, apparently this is what her mom wanted to name her, but she misspelled it. So that's how she became Oprah. But we, we will use the Bible's own one. Yeah, she will not say anything for us. All right, so what is left of Naomi's family? Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. And so she only has her two uh, daughters-in-law. Last week we saw that once she heard that there was something going on in her hometown, they now started to move. That's in verse 6 and verse 7. But now, Naomi wants to tell, wants to go with both of them. But Naomi's like, I have some truth to tell you. This thing, that Naomi, she knows how to argue. Right? She may be suffering, but she knows how to argue. She, she's almost like, she's the kind of person like, ah, if they weren't living in those times where women didn't work in that way, she would have been a lawyer. She would have been a lawyer. Because she went and she told, uh, they were allowed to live. She said, oh yeah, yeah, stop. You people, you have to go back. You have to go back. Verse 8, she says, go back, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness. You have been good to me. So let the Lord show you kindness. As you have been, you've been kind to me and my dead husband and your, your dead husband, sorry. She says, may the Lord grant you. God grant that each of you will find rest in the house, in the home of another husband. And then she kisses them goodbye and they wept aloud. She's saying, go back. You need another husband. I can't give you what you think you get. You have been kind. You deserve for me. For to have another husband. But ladies are, they don't give up easily. It's after they wept, what did they do? They, uh, verse 10, and they said to her, Like, like, we are going back with you. We'll go back with you through thick and thin. Is it not nice to have people through thick and thin? But then Naomi said, hey, You have not, you don't understand what I'm talking about. So she steps it up another level. Return home, oh, my daughter. So why would you come with me? I am, I'm, okay, let me explain now. Because you need economic security. If me, I die, who is going to take care of you? She says, am I going to have more sons who could become your husband? Return home, number three. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I, I thought I, there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hands are turned against me. In other words, she's saying, Lord, use your head. Go and find a husband now before it is too late. Because the road is really, really bad. So at that point, Opa first now wiped her tears. She looked at it and said, ah, if I go, these people, they don't even know me. I'm a Moabite. I enter into Judah. I thought that in Judah, in Judah, she may have some connections of some young people that she could introduce me to. It looks like she's saying she doesn't have any. Ah. What is this woman? Ah. I saw Paul Fire say, ah, mommy. <laughs> um, 
Come, let me kiss you. Hey, mommy! I'll miss you! See, Opa says, I know fit. I know what? Fit. Guys, we must not be too harsh to Opa. Sometimes it is good to take stock and just say, I would like to come, but I know fit. You see, sometimes some, some problems, you are not called to the problem. The problem is there. There are people that are called to that problem, but it's not your name that is written on it. What you should do is you look at it, you say, ah! Oh, But I know fit. That's all Opera said. That's all Opera said. She said, I know fit. It's true. And let me tell you why. Because, listen, there are some times that people... Have you never experienced this? Some people that you know, they are suffering. They are going through difficulty. You go and meet them. And you want to comfort them. Within five minutes, ten minutes, they are already saying, thank you for coming. I'm fine. I'm okay. And you be like, fine, okay. Look at you. You're not fine. I don't want to go. But they are telling you, don't worry. It's okay. It's okay. Why are they doing that? You know why they are doing that? It's a protective measure. It's a protective measure. Let, let me explain to you. Sometimes they know the depth of the suffering that they are going through. A better translation of 113, when Naomi says, uh, would you remain unmarried uh, for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me. This, it is more bitter for me than for you. Another translation is, it is, I am too bitter for you. And proof of that is that when she renamed herself, Naomi means pleasant. She said, call me Mara. Mara means what? Bitter. She said, you don't understand. Though. This one that you are coming to meet me, I am bitter. It's not that I am going through bitterness. Bitter, name be my name. You can't handle it. And if I give you some kind of false, if I open up to you with my vulnerability to start talking about my problems, you may initially start, but eventually, will you not stop picking up my calls? Won't you say, I can't pray again now, like I'm waiting now, you know? And if you do that, see, sometimes some people say, it is better to go through present disappointment than to endure future misery. So they are hedging against the future. Like, I may come out of this thing, but if after what I'm going through, you now, to, you now decide that you are going to be with me and then that you, you, leave me, you now leave me at the end, like it will be too much for me. So many times, can I advise you? You pretty quickly take stock. When some people say, ah, Eh, eh, this is what I'm going through. Ah, you mean, don't worry, you don't have to. And then you now come and start saying something inside you. I'm, I see it a lot. That's why when people have lost loved ones, you now come and say, no matter what time it is, no matter, I will always be. Hold it. If you know you can't, hold it. Now, I am not saying, I'm saying in your mind, you should examine the situation and just say, I know. Don't go and say it out. Do you understand? Notice, Naomi did not say it out. Naomi just held her, wept out. She kissed her mother-in-law. He didn't say she kissed her mother-in-law and said goodbye. He said she kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. You know, the kiss was... <laughs> she was moving. Bless Opa's heart. She understood that temporary relief may end up in permanent misery. And she just said, I know fit. She spared Naomi future heartbreak. Opa wasn't bad. But there's something better than Opa. Because in verse 14, he says, 
Opal kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But, 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 Ruth did what? She clung to her. Notice what he said. He did not say, as Naomi was pushing up the argument, Ruth was showing more of her commitment. Because the first time when he says, go back, they said they wept. She wept and they said, we'll go back with you. Then after this argument that she now uh, uh, posed, the second argument that she posed, Naomi was basically saying, okay, now, now that, now, the upper now succumbed to that argument. At the same time that upper was going like this, Ruth was going further towards her. Ruth was not neutral. Ruth did not contemplate and say, hmm, maybe you should I, huh? At that point, Ruth then further clung to her. Guys, we need Ruths in our lives. We need people who, whilst others leave, they cling to us. Right? Because God understands that through life's pains, while he acknowledges that we'll have many uppers, and you may be an upper, and you have uppers in your life, while we need that, you cannot go through life's pains with uppers alone. You need some roots in your life. You need people that will hold on to you. You know, you need some ride or die people. Ruth was right or die. We'll see that in the text, right? You need some people that will go with you and say, no matter what, I will follow you. May God send you some roots in your life. Yeah. Opas are kind. But man, we need some roots. Ruth was, to show you her commitment, she was determinedly committed. In fact, the verse 18 said that Ruth was determined to go with her. And it proves this because Naomi was not letting go she had done argument number one, right? She said, you are kind to me. You deserve kindness. Go. Argument number two, don't be foolish. Go. Argument number three, she didn't really have much. She just said, look at your sister-in-law. She has seen the light. Will you not see the light as well? <laughs> Will you not see the light as well? Ruth's response, oh my God. Ruth's response in verses 16 to 17 is one of the most important and most famous passages of all of scripture. It is a wonderful thing. It is a profound, she makes a series of profound statements in poetic ways. It is where profundity meets poetry. This thing blows one's mind. I want us to read it together from verse 16 to 17. But Ruth replied, don't urge me, I can't hear you, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Verse 17. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. Ah, man, this thing is so profound. As I was thinking about the profundity, get that picture right now, as I was thinking about the profundity of this thing, I was like, what else could be this profound? I was thinking, what could represent the profundity for these people that I can explain how important this question she is, uh, this statement she's making, what else could remind me about this? And the only thing I could think about was this. <laughs> what this? What was this? This thing is absolutely profound. I'm telling you, this is what we call a risky burger. Uh, you know risky? Risky burger. And people are looking, like, what's so risky about it? I'm like, you people are not serious. You are not serious. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine came here to preach, Jeremiah. And every time he was talking, he was giving us, he was telling us about the argument, it comes in a ham sandwich. 
ham sandwich. And some of them are like, it's true. I mean, ham sandwich, oh, that's so nice. Ham sandwich. What is a ham sandwich compared to a risky burger? Look at what is going on there. That first is agege bread. Not just any kind of bread. Agege bread. Then if you look well, this is egg. So you have agege bread. Then you have egg. And then you have what? Akara. Risky, but, but rewarding. You see, when you think of what Ruth said, it's like a risky burger. It is, very, it is structured in a particular way. You see, there, there's the bread part which begins it and ends it. There's the middle part, two other statements again. And then the center is the thing that, that culminates everything she's saying. Let me show you. In the bread part, what is she saying? She says, don't urge me to abandon you. Don't urge me to what? Abandon you. She said, why are you telling, why is she saying, please don't do this? At this point, Ruth is actually really being emotional. Don't tell me to do this. You know why? Because look at the other thing at the end, at verse 17. Verse 17, he says, if you are telling me to do that, she puts a curse upon herself. Come to verse 17. She says, look, may the Lord deal with me ever, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Do you know what she's saying? She's saying, if I leave you, what I'm doing is absolutely wicked. So let God curse me if I leave you. He said, I have sworn an oath that I will not leave you. If I leave you, it will be a sin to me. May God give you people who say that. May God punish them if they leave you. When you have that kind of determined commitment, like no matter what, this is what I mean by ride or die. She says, even if death, death itself will not separate me from you. And so you may say, ah, but Ruth, you are being overly dramatic. You are being so rational at the bread. Now, let me take you to the egg and the akara together. Because while she was emotional up there, here she's being very rational. Because she's going to express in the rationality, in those two things, she's going to express that the reason why I'm discommitted, it has to do with three things. Territory, ethnicity, and theology. Territory, ethnicity, and theology. In th territory, she's basically saying this. She says this, I'll go where you go. I will stay where you stay. I will die where you die. I will be buried where you buried. In other words, she's basically saying, I will identify in your space of grief so much that it will be my own space of grief. That is the highest sense of empathy. Territory. But then, she goes further. Now we are in the Akara part. She then says, it's an issue of ethnicity. She said, your people will be what? My People. Now think about it. Yes, when we are related to our family members, you can think, oh, this one is my father's daughter and so and my mother's daughter, so she's my sister. We often can think about whether it's our sisters, our siblings, or our cousins, we can think about the connection in an immediate sense. But whenever I meet a Yoruba person, I know that we are somehow related. But our relationship is based on history, broad history. Are you following? Now somehow, somehow, we all came from Odudua. Somehow, somehow, speak the similar language, you look in a particular way. That is, our connection is so broad across history. Sometimes, you know what? Our relationships are so, so in the immediate that we can actually break it off. What she was telling her is this. My bond with you is so broad that it is like ethnic history. Your people will be my people. You may be my mother-in-law and we are now from different nations, but I'm telling you, our relationship, the bond I have with you, it will be as broad as ethnic history. Amen. But it's not just broad. It is also deep. 
your God will be what? My God. In other words, she's saying, I will share the same. It is so deep. Our relationship is so broad, but it's also so deep that I will share the same intimate space of worship with you. May God punish me if I don't follow you. The reason why I will follow you is because I am going to be in your territory, your space. I have committed myself to follow you, to be with your people, and I'm going to worship your God. Listen, when Naomi saw that determination in her, you know what he said in verse 18? Naomi realized that Ruth was so determined. Naomi did what? She stopped. There are some arguments that people give to you with words that only actions can actually end them. After she had given all the word argument, Naomi said, Hey, lady, this woman is so committed. There is nothing I can do. I will stop. May you... May you find maybe just one or two people like that in your life. May you find them in this church where it's like you have tried everything and the person is like, you will. There was someone in this church who used to go, the person used to suffer terrible, terrible depression. I wrote the person who said that Friday, the person will work to a stupor, work themselves to a stupor, get back home very late on Friday had already put black curtains like this. And the ones that, you know, shut the light, uh, what do you call the light shutters, that takes the light out. And she would just close it, put on TV, go under her duvet, and she would be like that till next, till Monday. She didn't want to talk to anybody. She didn't want to see anybody. The darkness that was inside her was reflected in darkness that was outside her. And no matter how you try to get close to her, it was always difficult until somebody else in this church Somebody else in this church literally went, was banging the door of her house. I'm not going to live here unless you let me in. I am not going to live. The person was there for hours. Until that one now said, ah, what am I going to do with this? Until eventually you opened the door for her. That was, why are you looking like this? Come on, let's fix yourself up. Let's take a bath. Let's go out. That was eventually the key that started to bring that person out. I pray that if you've never had anybody like that in your life, may the Lord give them to you. Because we can't go through life being just walking on our own. We need people that are ruthlessly committed to us. No wonder with all that Ruth said and did for Naomi. No wonder in Ruth 4.15, it says that Ruth was better to, she lost two sons. He said that Ruth was better to you than what? Seven sons. And I want to show you one other thing that this blessing of Ruth did. You see in verse 22, you may miss it. In verse 22, don't forget, how did life start for Naomi and her husband? Famine. It was famine that drove them away. Now she lost the husband. Now she lost her sons. She was in a place of famine, a place of destitution. Now Ruth has clung on to her. Ruth has said, I will be with you no matter where you go. And it says that she was approaching. It was about the time of harvest. Guys, it was not coincidental that Ruth was the one who was opening up the door for the blessing of restoration that Naomi was going to experience. There are friends that come and cling to you that at some point you don't even know. You know where you started, but it don't just make it seem as though it's... it's Ruth was not incidental to Naomi's blessing. She was critical to it. She was not accidental to Naomi's blessing. She was central to it. There are people that God has sent you. Again, they come in ordinary packages, but they're the ones that open up the doorways for God's multiplied blessings to come. I said that may the Lord give them to you. Because here's the thing. Sometimes we take the wrong approach when we want to comfort people or want to see them restored, whether they're in sin or whether they're in suffering. 
You know many of the approaches we take, when we look at their condition, we just say, hey, it's because they believe in that theology. Once I argue theology with them, you start with theology. You argue theology with them, and you hope that by the time you show them their theology is wrong and yours is better, then the next thing is you bring them, you invite them to church. Then when they see that your church is better than their church, then you now say, ah, they're really willing to join. Ah, okay. Then you now say, hey, so what is that problem? Theology, community, empathy. Notice, Ruth reverses the order. She says, I will go with you where you are. I will be in your space, empathy. She says, your people will be my people, community. And it is only then that she then says, your God will be my God. That is theology. Guys, listen, some people, for them, belonging comes before believing. You have to first show them the love of Christ before you show them the truth about Christ. Many times, even James chapter 5, verse 19, 20 says, some people may wander away from the truth, but it shows you that it's not just send messages to them just like that. He says, go and meet them. My brother and sisters, if one should ever wander from the truth, one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring, now notice, brothers and sisters, personhood. One of you, personhood. Someone, personhood. Should bring that person back, personhood. Remember this, whoever, personhood, turns a sinner from the error of their way, will save them from a death, from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I'm saying it is not statement and propositions first. He says, leave where you are and go and find that person. Personhood is intrinsic in God's way of restoring people. Are we hearing? Because quite often, let me tell you the truth. If you lead them with theology first, you will win the argument, but you lose the person. But quite often, when you lead them with empathy and community, you win the person first and eventually you win the argument. And this is why I'm saying, don't misapply honesty is the best policy. You eventually get to the truth, but show your presence, cling on to them, so that you earn the right to tell them, but this thing, this is what you are doing. Amen. And I do want to say this to some of us here. Also be the kind of person that is willing to receive the truth. One of the blessings I have is that I have particular strong friends and also reciprocal. They tell me, they say, please don't hide the truth from me wherever I'm going. But you know, sometimes you, many of us have been burnt where you give the truth to somebody and that's it. They ex you totally. Let's not be like that. God is sending you people your way that are going to be ruthlessly and determined and committed to you in a determined way. Be open to God's blessing in your life. Amen? I pray that God will make us that kind of church. That we will not just see ourselves as acquaintances. We will see ourselves as family members. That will be tied, the, the bonds that will tie us to each other will be rooted in determined commitment. May we be those kind of people. So let me end with this point. If you family. You see, someone is saying, man, this sounds too good to be true. Sounds too good to be true. Because I would really love for people to be committed to me in this kind of way. I, I would love it. In fact, you're even saying, I need it. I need it. But I don't have anything to offer to join this kind of family. I don't have anything to offer. And what I do here in that is two interrelated things. The first one is this. You are wondering why people will be or we should be committed to one another in this way. What's the basis for it? Why should we be committed to one another in this way? What's the basis for it? 
And the second thing is, you are asking, what does it take to join this kind of family? Because I don't think I have what it takes. I don't deserve to join. Can I say, let me answer the second one first. What does it take? You're not alone, no. Naomi, <laughs> Naomi did not think that God was going to accept her back. I hope you know that. She didn't think that God was going to accept her. She wasn't going because she was really returning to God. She just wanted to get small bread. And the, the reason why is because you can tell, she told Opa not just to go back to her people. You know what she said? Go back to your gods. She did not feel that she was going to get the favor of the God of Israel. So don't come with me. She felt that she had strayed so far away, he is not really going to have me back. She just wanted to go and die with her people and take some small bread. And at the same time, sometimes I look at that verse 22 when he says, Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by, notice, it did not say Ruth, her daughter-in-law. What did it start with? Ruth, the Moabite. The people will not first have noticed that Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law. They will first have noticed her ethnicity. And like, what is this one coming to do here? A Moab, thinking, a Moabite, thinking that you'll get the blessings of God. You see, many times we think about it and be like, I really don't have what it takes for God to accept me. I really cannot afford to be in this family. I don't want, I, it looks like the best for me is to be on the outside looking as you people continue to be ruthlessly committed. But for me, my own don't pass. Will he ever take me? Will I have what it takes? Can I tell you something? You can't afford what it takes to enter this family. You are correct. You can't afford it. But can I also tell you, you can surely join it as well. Let me explain. Take you back memory, down memory lane. There was a film released in 1992. It was called More Money. It was starring Damon Wenz, his brother, Alan Wenz, and Stacey Dash. Stacey Dash. <sighs> ah. Dickie Femi, you, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I do want to say that whatever feelings I had towards Stacey Dash, at that time, I wasn't married to my wife. I'd not met her. And I wasn't born again then. You understand, right? So, uh, let's just, um, let's just, let's uh, leave that. Don't you start... Stacey Dash, the film was actually a clunker. It wasn't a nice film. It wasn't that good. It wasn't that good a movie. But there was something great about the movie. It had a number of soundtracks that were released. And the best and the most famous of them was by Janet Jackson, Luther Vandross. Uh, who else? Who else? Belby DeVore. Ralph Tresvant. And the title of the song was The Best Things in Life are free. The chorus went something like this. I'm not going to sing it. Some of you want to sing it. We're not turning this place into a disco house. We're at church. But the best things in life are free. Now that I've discovered what you mean to me. Best things in life are free. Now that we've got each other. Best things in life are free. Guys, there are things, there are relationships that are so tight so close, that they are so expensive that the only way you can afford them is to pay, for, pay with the rest of your life 
or you receive them free. The best things in life what, are what? They are free. So priceless, so unaffordable that if you saved up all your money in this life and the life to come, you still can't afford it. So how can you have access to it? It's except somebody gives you free. How much did Ruth's love cost Naomi? Answer, nothing to Naomi. But it cost Ruth her life. Free to Naomi. Absolutely cost it to Ruth. And when I say it cost her life, literally she was saying, where you die self, I will what? Die. She was living her people, living all of those things. And she said, I will follow you there. Totally free. But absolutely costly. Many of us think that Ruth's actions were incredible, right? Question. Have you ever tried Jesus' own actions? You think you can't join this family? It's too unaffordable. Many people have said that to God. And people keep saying and hitting back arguments. God will not do this. God will not do that. Let me see. At some point, God is saying, you know what? I'm not going to have theological arguments with you. I'm just going to show you by my actions. If you thought Ruth's actions were incredible, then look at what Jesus did. You see, like Ruth said to Naomi, like you, I will be an Israelite. Jesus says to you, like you, I will become human. Like Ruth says to Naomi, I'll come to Bethlehem where you are. Jesus says, I'll come to the earth where you are. But unlike what Ruth said to Naomi, I'll die where you die and I'll be buried where you are buried. Jesus says to you, I will die so that you won't die again. Jesus says, I will go six feet under so that you can rise higher and higher. Ruth is good, but Jesus is better. But there's still one more thing. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah. There is still one more thing. You know the thing I think that Naomi would have struggled with the most and this is why she was keeping her daughters away. Naomi had issues with rejection and actually it wasn't rejection, it was really separation. Naomi had issues with separation. She had been enduring separation all her life. Because of famine, Naomi was separated from her people. Because of hardship and trouble, Naomi was separated from Opa. Because of death, Naomi was separated from her husband and from her sons. And Ruth said, death will not be able to separate me from you. Death will never be able to separate us. And what do you want to say? Ruth, you are nice, but please shut up. Death will separate both of you. And so she was dealing with separation. And some of us here still, this separation is something that haunts us. Could famine separate us? Could hardship separate us? Maybe death could separate us from the greatest love of all. I have good news for you. Look at what Romans chapter 8 says. This is why Jesus is better. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship? It may separate upper, but it won't separate Jesus from you. Or hurt or persecution, famine. It may separate you from your people, but it will never separate Jesus from you. Nakedness or danger or sword. But one more is coming, verse 38. For I am convinced. Tell your neighbor I am convinced. For this thing is rooted in God's actions, in history. It is the, it's the foundation of all truth. I am convinced that evil death will never be able to separate me from your love. Never death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, verse 39, neither height nor death, nor anything else. Not even you will be able to separate yourself from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You think Ruth is better? 
Try Jesus first. You think your mom is better? Try Jesus first. I can assure you that Jesus is the one who will never be separated from you. He died, he went on there, but he's coming back again. And so that answers your first question. But the second question is, answers the second question. That is how you get it. It is absolutely costly to Jesus. It cost him his life. But it is free to you. How do you join this family? You enter freely. It is priceless. And that's why it's given to you free. But now Jesus asks something from you. And this answers the first question. Why do we do this? What is the basis for it? John chapter 15 verse 12. He says, My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Why? Because greater love has no one than to do this. Lay down one's life for one's friends. Let's rise to our feet. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.